Well, good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and it's so great to have as our guest this morning, Judge John V. Denson. Judge Denson's podcasts are some of the most popular that we have, uh, and what he does is he talks about some of the books that he's just read uh, or books he read in the past and is reevaluating, re- and they're always just tremendously interesting. And besides being a judge and an attorney, he's also an historian, a great man, a great learned man, and John, it's so great to have you here. And tell us about the first book that you're going to talk about today. All right. It's good to be back. I always enjoy uh, these podcasts with you. The book I'm going to talk about today is The First Founding Father. It's about Richard Henry Lee and written by Harlow Unger, who is a distinguished uh, historian that uh, has written some 11 biographies of American founders. The title, First Founding Father... Richard Henry Lee and the Call to Independence is uh, was a little bit uh, uh, interesting to me because uh, I'm a member of the uh, Sons of American Revolution, and uh, the name of our chapter is the Richard Henry Lee chapter. So when I joined, yeah. I really didn't know who he was, and I realized that uh, now after reading this book, he's maybe the most important founder because. He was the first founding father, and you'll see as we get into this how he is so important, and this uh, author takes a position that he's been badly neglected uh, in uh, commemorating the history of the founding. Here's the uh, opening uh, paragraph of the book uh, written by Mr. Unger, and he says, uh, John, your books always remind me of Murray Rothbard's because you have so many notes written on the pages pages of the book. (laughs) It it it's runs it for resale because I I'm, I talk no no to the it author. doesn't hurt it at all. Yeah. <laughs> Here's his introduction. He says, before Washington, before Jefferson, before Franklin, or John Adams, there was Lee, Richard Henry Lee, first of the founding fathers to call for independence, first to call for union, first to call for a bill of rights. Richard Henry Lee was as much a father of our country as George Washington. For it was Lee who masterminded the political and diplomatic victories that ensured Washington's military victory in the Revolutionary War. And after the nation took shape, it was Lee, not James Madison, who conceived the Bill of Rights that our nation enjoys today. Wow. That's a pretty good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the, uh, <laughs> the first to call for committees of correspondence. He was the first to call for drawing up the Articles of Confederation. He served as president of the Articles of Confederation Legislature, which was just, a, it wasn't president of the United States, it was just the presiding officer mm-hmm. for the Congress of the Articles of Confederation. But um, I'll start off with a little bit about the significance, why you call it first founding father, because he is the person that at the congressional uh, meeting of the Continental Congress, he made the motion for independence. And it was a crucial time in American history because France had taken the position that, uh, and they were being solicited by mainly Benjamin Franklin to to help us. And they took the position, well, you're still negotiating with England. Fighting's going on. Are you going to be independent or not? So it was a sort of a position of fish or cut bait time. And unless America took a firm position of independence, they were not going to get the help from the French. So <clears throat> it was decided that they would um, 
have this motion made, and Lee was selected uh, to be the person to make that motion. And let me tell you a little bit of background about why he was so important at that time and, and is today. His family uh, came to America back in about 1640. And uh, the first Lee came with a lot of uh, people with him, and so he got head rights to about 1,000 people, so that gave him 50 acres for each uh, person. But it was his father, Thomas Lee, that acquired the huge land uh, ownership of the Lees. And he obviously had a good relationship with the King of England, Thomas, the father did, because he negotiated some treaties with the Indians, and the king gave him 500,000 acres of land, <laughs> which was a pretty good, pretty good gift. And it stretched all the way into what's now Ohio. And then he married a woman that brought in 50,000 more. Wow. Then um, he bought some more. So it was a big landed uh, family. Thomas Lee was also educated in the best schools of England, and he made sure that his children were well-educated. So he built a, uh, a two-story building on his uh, plantation, and they grew tobacco. That was their crop, mm -hmm. wasn't cotton. He built this house and, and employed a retired a Scottish minister and, uh, to come teach his children homeschooling. He had six sons and two daughters. And so uh, the tutor took them at age five, and they stayed with him until age 12. Then they were shipped off to boarding school in England, to the best boarding schools. And when they completed the boarding schools, they went to the best universities. So all of them were extremely well-educated. They even studied John Locke in the homeschooling between ages five and 12, <laughs> second treatise on government. So um, Lee was extremely well-educated, and after he graduated from college in England, he toured the continent and stayed a lot in Paris, and then in London, he came back and stayed with his older brother. Of course, this was primogenitor, so he inherited. The older brother got most of the land, I think. Uh, Richard Henry got just a couple of hundred acres, so um, he had a small uh, thing. But uh, they also had a very profitable business with England, and that they, they uh, planted the cotton, cured it, and they had an interest in ships, or maybe owned them. So there was no middleman that uh, grew the tobacco, put it on their ships, and sent it to England. And two of the brothers lived in England. They received the cotton <laughs> and sold it to retailers. So uh, it was an extremely profitable business. So you got <clears throat> this uh, landed gentry well-educated and very good contact with England. And, and here's the man that's chosen to say, we need to separate. So that was the significance of having him make the motion. It was, it was decided that uh, they would see if anybody would second the motion. But uh, as a backup, John Adams was there. And so he was going to make the second. And that would bring the, the North and the South together. So... Lee wrote the resolution that was later part of it was copied in the Declaration of Independence by Jefferson, but he wrote the resolution and then made the motion that we declare independence. And there was this long silence. Nobody seconded it for a long time. <clears throat> so finally, uh, Adams made the second, and they started the discussions. So uh, not taking a vote, just what do y'all think? So five states' representatives said they were for independence. Five states said they were against it. Three states said that they didn't have the, uh, or colonies said they didn't have the authority to take a position. 
So obviously it couldn't take a vote. So at that point, Lee took it on himself to campaign for independence. And his sister was married to a very prominent physician. They had a beautiful home. I don't know whether it was in Williamsburg or Philadelphia. But anyway, he started entertaining people at her home. And uh, he was very articulate, very brilliant. In fact, uh, later on, some of the newspapers called him the Cicero of the American Revolution. So he was a very convincing man. So they set up July 2 as the date to uh, bring it to a vote. When they got there, the vote was 12 to 0, Georgia, uh, Georgia I think. No, New York. It didn't take a position at first, but they later uh, took the vote. So that July 2 was the date that they declared independence. So John Adams wrote his wife, and he said, uh, said July the 2nd, 1776, is going to be the most important date in American history. And... Uh, in the world, maybe, where we've declared our independence from the British Empire. So Lee had already told him he couldn't stay longer because he had to get back to his business. So he was not present when they selected the committee to draw up the Declaration of Independence. But there's a, the, the famous picture of the, uh, presenting the Declaration of Independence with Jefferson there has, a, um, has Lee present in the audience, but he really wasn't. But he surely should have been on that committee. So Jefferson, as we know, was selected to write the Declaration. He used a lot of Lee's uh, language in the Declaration. So we now celebrate July the 4th as the date of independence, but it's really July 2, so happy July 2nd to you. <laughs> and uh, so uh, then Lee, um, after that, he was a member of the Continental Congress. And uh, we were getting first in the war. Uh, he did take part in the war, especially defending Virginia, and actually fought in, in some of the battles. But he was mainly Washington's support with the Continental Congress and seeing that Washington was always short of funds and people and very discouraged, and Lee was his main support in Congress. So we get now to the uh, convention. So uh, Lee is in the uh, Continental Congress, and they uh, authorize the... Uh, meeting in Philadelphia in order to amend the Articles of Confederation, not to draw up a constitution. So uh, Patrick Henry was selected as a delegate, and Lee was selected, Washington was selected. All three declined. Patrick Henry said he smelled a rat. He wasn't going to go. Lee said that he was already in the Continental Congress. Washington said that um, he sort of done all he could do. And... Um, Madison put the uh, pressure on Washington and said, we, we can't do anything if you're not there. So uh, George Mason and George Washington and uh, Lee were all close personal friends. In fact, Washington and Lee uh, met when they were about 22 years old. And they had gone in business together to develop the land called the Ohio Land Company. And then uh, Mason was a close neighbor, as far as you can be close to somebody with hundreds of acres of land, to Washington. But Mason was a strong, as we call him, anti-federalist now, but very much for a uh, federal government, meaning that uh, you would have sovereignty of the states with a uh, not a uh, strong central government. And the words federalist and anti-federalist got all messed up like the words liberal and conservative. Creeps, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, liberal in the 19th century meant uh, something different than it did in the 20th and so forth. So 
later they became known as the uh, the two competing sides as the Federalists, who really did not believe in federalism. They should have been called the Nationalists, and the Anti-Federalists believed in federalism. <laughs> so anyway, we'll call them as they are in history, but uh, Lee and Mason were both strong Anti-Federalists. And the main thing that, that Lee talked with Mason about before the uh, Constitutional Convention was be sure that you add the Bill of Rights to the Articles of Confederation. It's, it's a little bit confusing to me after reading the book about whose Bill of Rights we're talking about because on my wall in my law office, I have the Virginia Bill of Rights showing George Mason as the author. And I've always uh, thought that George Mason was the author of the Bill of Rights that we have now, but according to this book, the, the Bill of Rights that we have are really composed by Lee. So Lee was encouraging Mason, be sure you have the Bill of Rights. So I think there were 70 delegates chosen, 55 showed up, uh, 39 remained, and 36 signed, and three refused to sign. George Mason being one, Elbridge Gary one, and Virginia Governor one. So they refused to sign the Constitution, uh, mainly because it did not have a Bill of Rights. So right at the end of the uh, Constitutional Convention, Mason and, and, and Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts took the role of making a motion on a second that we had a Bill of Rights. And that vote was taken, and it was unanimously voted not to have a Bill of Rights. So James Madison <laughs> voted not to add a Bill of Rights. And most of the states had copied George Mason's Bill of Rights, and so it wouldn't have been very difficult to have a Bill of Rights right quick. And, uh, but um, anyway, it was voted down. So um, the Constitution was then submitted to the states uh, for ratification, take it or leave it. There was something like 100 or over 120 amendments proposed, and most all of them said you need to have a Bill of Rights. So it was a very close vote in a lot of places. And some of the states took the position that if, if you don't put a Bill of Rights, we're withdrawing our ratification. And of course, Virginia and two other states specifically reserved the right to secede if they uh, didn't have the Bill of Rights and so forth. So <clears throat> Lee, as you can imagine, was extremely upset that they didn't amend the Articles of Confederation and drew up a Constitution, which he said, even with a Bill of Rights, is too strong. We've gone from one extreme to the other. And he was especially upset no Bill of Rights. So he and George Mason were very much uh, against the ratification in Virginia. And that broke up the friendship they had with Washington. He was upset that his good friends were opposing the Constitution that he had presided over. And um, that friendship with Washington didn't uh, get renewed till right near the end of Lee's uh, life. He had opposed a lot of the Constitution. Lee had opposed a lot of the Constitution because the president had too much power, and uh, especially in issuing executive orders. And uh, Washington issued an executive order while he was president for neutrality. And so Lee made an exception and commended him for his <laughs> neutrality. <laughs> and that, uh, that helped George Washington because Lee had always opposed the, those executive orders. But anyway... Patrick Henry just apparently had a hatred for James Madison. 
and he wanted to make sure that the legislature did not have James Madison as one of the senators. So Patrick Henry pretty much controlled the legislature. And so he had uh, Lee as one of the uh, U.S. senators and another strong anti-federalist as the other senator. And so um, Madison was still for the Constitution without a Bill of Rights. But he took the position, Madison took the position that uh, I'm going to run for Congress. And uh, my pledge to you is if you elect me to Congress, the first thing I'm going to do is submit a Bill of Rights. And that helped get the uh, vote passed. And it took nine states uh, to approve the Constitution. At the time they were voting, uh, they were the ninth state. They didn't know it, but New Hampshire had already uh, voted for it. So, But it was a crucial thing. Are we going to have a nation or not? And uh, New York had not voted at that point either. Um, but anyway, it was a close vote, but they approved it. But... Um, it, it appears that when Madison uh, got to Congress that he kept uh, the promise of, of uh, working with Lee. And apparently the, uh, the main uh, verbiage of the Bill of Rights was composed by Lee and not Madison. And so uh, I think Madison finally submitted something like 17 uh, Bill of Rights and the Congress uh, adopted uh, 12 and sent them to the states, and so we have the 10. And Lee was very upset with the 10th Amendment leaving out the word expressly. And the 10th Amendment was supposed to read, all those rights uh, belong to the states except those which are expressly delegated under the Constitution to the federal government. Of course, the express delegation uh, and the Constitution gave Congress the right to coin money. And uh, Hamilton later took, uh, <laughs> took uh, advantage of leaving expressly out and said, well, if it's not expressly given, it's implied because you need a bank to coin money and it's necessary and proper. And of course, Lee objected to the necessary and proper clause, which has become the elastic clause in constitutional law. But anyway, the... Um, Lee um, uh, stayed active uh, as long as he could. He died at age 62 in uh, 1794. He didn't finish his term in the Senate due to health reasons. And um, I want to want to close up on on the the history of of, of all this with uh, what happened after James Madison was president. Um, as we know, he sort of switched over with Jefferson as they created the Democrat-Republican Party, and Jefferson became president, and Madison secretary of state, and so forth. So Madison <clears throat> decided, excuse me, after the war, excuse me, after he was uh, his term as president ended, that he was going to write a history of the secret meetings and what happened at the uh, Constitutional Convention because they were all sworn to secrecy. They wouldn't let anybody in. Nobody knew what was said there. So Madison, um, in uh, eight, it's the 1816 or 17 is when his term ended. In 1819, his notes came out. Well, there were still two delegates that had opposed uh, Madison throughout the convention. They were from New York. And the other delegate from New York was Hamilton, who was the arch-nationalist. 
uh, Yates was one of the New York delegates. He'd been elected to the Supreme Court of New York, and I think he had died. But he had made extensive notes at the convention. So Lansing decided to reply to Jefferson. And the book that was written in 1821 with Yates' notes, and this was the first time that uh, people had known what Hamilton had done at the Constitutional Convention. Yates and um, Lansing got so upset with Hamilton, they left before it was over. But when Hamilton got up to speak at the Constitutional Convention, which is stated in this book now, they disclose it. He said the greatest government in the world is the uh, British Empire, the British government. And we need to get as close as we can to that model without having a king. And so we need for the president to be elected for life. And we need the U.S. senators to be elected for life. And like the, uh, the Tories. And then we need the states to just be administrative bodies, not have sovereignty, and have a governors appointed by the president. And so it was the most extreme national government uh, that you could imagine. I imagine that uh, Madison probably didn't go along with that. They said when Hamilton got through, there was this long silence, and nobody said anything for it or against it. They just sort of startled and just went on to other business. But uh, anyway, Hamilton ended up being there by himself and signing for the uh, Constitution, and, and Lansing and Yates uh, left and went back to New York. New York's governor, Clinton, was a very strong anti-federalist against the Constitution. So by the time New York voted, uh, nine states had already uh, approved it. But the way the Federalist Papers got started was mainly by Hamilton wrote most of it, Madison about a third of it, and Jay about five of the essays. But it was mainly propaganda for New York to approve the Constitution. And by uh, naming themselves the Federalists, it confused people thinking that they were for federalism. So uh, the, the thing that uh, I learned in this new book is that uh, finally it settles who wrote the best anti-federalist papers was Lee. He wrote uh, what was called the Letters of a Federal Farmer. And I've read histories from years back where uh, people speculated Melanchthon Smith wrote them and nobody knew who who wrote it, but now this professor that wrote this book on Lee says it's now absolutely clear that those were the essays of Lee that were the best written, and that's why he uh, was known as, as being uh, so articulate and, and well-educated, and those were the best things that uh, they had. But the Anti-Federalists had a big disadvantage. They didn't have a, an alternate document they could say to the uh, states look, this is better than what's been presented. It's, you had to pick and choose. And Lee's writings were probably too erudite for most people to absorb them and so forth. So today when you, uh, you see people say, if you want to know what the Constitution is, read the Federalist. And uh, it's, of course, the propaganda paper for a strong national <laughs> government. But, uh, it's political pamphlets. Yeah. yeah lying uh, political pamphlets. I brought this uh, medal here to show you, I can't show it to the people listening, but after the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin designed a medallion to, uh, to commemorate the help that France gave, and, and, and this, this book goes into a good bit of uh, the war and the fact that, that France was the key to us winning the American mm -hmm. Revolution. 
So this shows the Lady of Liberty fighting the English line. And then at the bottom is the baby, which is the United States. <laughs> and uh, on the other side, the Lady of Liberty and the Liberty, the Liberty Cap. And um, <clears throat> this was uh, for the uh, bicentennial of um, America. So uh, they reproduced this, and it's an exact copy of what was done back at the, after the Revolution. So the book pays great tribute to the French for helping us out and helping us win, but it uh, it shows uh, Lee as the first founding father is maybe one of the most important men of the whole uh, American uh, Revolution. It's a shame that he hadn't been recognized before now, and uh, he certainly should be. So this is a, a good book. It's a fairly new book. I recommend it strongly. Well, John, tremendous, and uh, we of course will link to this book as we'll link to your books. I think everybody can, uh, who's maybe not heard John before, understand why he was a great teacher as well as everything else that he's achieved in his life. So, John, uh, thanks a million, and uh, come back soon, please. Okay. It's always good to be here, Lou. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you.